0: Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise, and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. Japanese gardens epitomize the love of aesthetics in Japanese culture. In fact, garden design is an important Japanese art form which has been evolving for over a thousand years. With maples and cherry trees, soft velvety moss, manicured bushes, ponds, bridges, patterned beds of pebbles and gravel, Japanese gardens come in various forms. In today's podcast, Dr. Kathleen Olive tells us about the history of the Japanese garden, what makes it so different from Western gardens, and how to make the most of a garden visit. Kathleen is a literary and cultural historian. She has a BA with first-class honours and a PhD from the University of Sydney and a very particular interest in Italy, Spain and Japan. Welcome today. Thanks very much, Jo. When did you become interested
1: in Japanese gardens? It's actually a very early interest for me because I come from a family on both my parents' sides uh, of Gardeners, great gardeners, people who love their gardens. And so my grandmother and aunt had in their garden a very, very beautiful and rare miniature weeping. Japanese maple that they had been given. It was right next to the front door. So every time you went to visit them after it had rained, the droplets of rain would be beaded on the leaves of this weeping maple like diamonds. So that was a very early memory for me is this specific maple, whereas on my mother's side of the family, we used to have family, big family gatherings and catch-ups at the Japanese gardens in Auburn. So we actually spent a fair amount of time as children running around these beautiful Japanese gardens, which I suspect would horrify many Japanese gardeners, but it was a wonderful place for us to spend time as kids. So that was, I think the the aesthetic of the Japanese garden was certainly in my mind from a small age. And recently I've become much more interested in Japanese gardens because I have the great pleasure to take a number of tours to Japan that visit some of the top rated gardens uh, in Japan. And so it's been a pleasure to explore those more recently. So did you start doing a fair bit of research then? Absolutely, yes. Because I think gardens, and I've found this from my experience of taking people to Italy, gardens we don't tend to think of as artworks, but of course they're created generally by the garden designer and the person who has commissioned the designer to work on the garden, quite. Consciously as an artwork, but as one to be moved around in and experienced and enjoyed in very different ways. And you interact with a garden in a very different way to the way you interact with a sculpture, for example. So I think we don't tend to approach visiting a garden as viewing a work of art, but it's quite enjoyable to actually approach it in that way and take some of those same criteria that we would use to judge artworks and apply them to the gardens we're visiting as well.
0: How did the Japanese garden emerge historically?
1: It has a very long history in Japan, and that's primarily because of Japan's strong connection to one of its religions, Shinto. And for Shinto, nature has an extraordinary amount of power, uh, and Shinto is very interested in people, objects, plants, see rocks anything that seems to exude a power and a positive energy it sees those as sacred so the earliest gardens in japan seem to have been very very simple shinto enclosures where something a very old eminent tree for example was roped off very simply with rice straw and you see you still see ropes of rice straw in shinto shrines protecting beautiful trees uh, there's a very famous shrine in tokyo called the Meiji Shrine, which is an imperial shrine to the Meiji Emperor, and there there were two camp florals that survived firebombing in World War II during the firebombing of Tokyo, and so they have these ropes around them, and that seems to have been the earliest type of Japanese garden, just a very simple enclosure to say this thing, this part of the world that we live in, is sacred, is different, is pure, and needs to be set apart and protected. But then later, particularly after Japan starts having more contact with China, there are different garden traditions that are imported into Japan through China, and those become particularly important to the emperors. So that's in the period that we would call the Heian period, that that becomes quite important. So say from the 9th into the 11th and even 12th centuries, where a garden becomes a way for a very wealthy, educated person to display all of that knowledge that they have, and expertise that they have to people who are visiting them in their beautiful villas. So that garden becomes both a status symbol, but also a place for having a fabulous party
0: so they become secular. Do they still draw on spiritual symbols as well?
1: They absolutely do, because by this stage, Japan has become greatly influenced by Buddhism, something else that's imported from China China and Korea. And so in Buddhism, in the Buddhist tradition, there are certain elements within nature that stand in as symbols for our spiritual progression. So the big mountain at the centre of our consciousness, for example. Uh, also animals that have come, ideas of animals, animals as symbols that have come through with Buddhism and with Chinese uh, aesthetics, they become important as well. So cranes and turtles, for example, which are very auspicious animals. And so you don't necessarily have actual cranes and turtles in your garden, although that would be very nice. Uh, you might just have rocks that look like a crane and a turtle or trees that look like cranes and turtles. Or you might have a nice lake with a big island coming out of it that supports to represent Mount Maru, this mountain at the in the, the centre of the universe from the Buddhist tradition. So although they become secular places where you have a great party and you enjoy yourself, certainly the symbolism that's incorporated within them still remains tied to some of those spiritual traditions that they've come out of. So
0: ponds
1: and water features become increasingly prevalent. Mm, Water is very important. Water is very important in Japan in general because thanks to this strong tradition that has emerged with the religion of Shinto, water is a purifying force. And Shinto is very concerned with things being pure and clean. So water is very significant uh, in Japan in many, many ways. It's also a very mountainous country, which means that water is often falling from great heights uh, and they have they're lucky to have nice quantities of water as well. So water has been important just from a a natural history point of view, but then also within the garden, water became very important in what we call the Heian period, this imperial uh, period uh, and culture that emerges in the city of Kyoto from the ninth ninth century. Uh, And that's what we call the pond touring garden. So that style of garden in the Heian uh, era that was so important was an actual pond with islands in it. And when you had people around to your villa you would take them out onto the lake or the pond in little boats and you would actually admire the garden from the viewpoint of the water so the the water was the integral way in which you actually saw the garden to its best advantage was from water level
0: and bridges i know you know in art we often see the the bridge in a japanese garden mm,
1: absolutely and i think that's so strongly in our consciousness because of the way in which obviously the impressionists in france adopt so many of their aesthetics from from japan so Bridges, for example. But in Japan, a lot of the the bridges in some of the most famous Japanese gardens, they are actually quotations of bridges from China. So what's happened is that someone planning a garden in Tokyo in the seventeenth century has seen a painting from China of a particular garden in China with a bridge in it, and they have recreated that bridge in their own garden in Japan, which then perhaps Monet decides would look nice in his garden in Jivani. So it's this beautiful long genealogy of things like bridges, absolutely.
0: And lots of moss, apparently, because it's interesting. You know, in Western world, we often try and get rid of the moss. Absolutely. But we,
1: culture it. <laughs> we see it as a weed. I think they've had to work with it because if you think of trying to have a garden in Australia that was entirely made out of moss, there's perhaps two places in the entire country where you would be able to do that. Your water bill would be enormous, whereas in Japan, they do have a lot of abundant water and they it's quite a humid country as well. If you've ever been in summer, you know, it's extremely humid. So they can keep moss gardens alive. Uh, And the moss gardens are a really interesting tradition because they're playing with just one thing, and that's green. The only thing that you have in those moss gardens is colour, but it's only one colour, it's just green. And you start to see an extraordinary range through the colour and you also see how texture is so important as well because the texture of the moss becomes particularly apparent when light filters down through trees. It depends on the season, what's happening with the leaves of the trees up above the moss. So the moss gardens, I think, are particularly attractive to us because they are so unattainable for the average Australian gardener. And what are the other elements in a Japanese garden? Some of the things that are important for appreciating a Japanese garden are harder to know if you don't know what it is you should be looking for. So taking the key elements as a way to experience a Japanese garden, I think there's a lot of value to that. And one of the hardest things for us to see, unless we know it's there, is the way in which Japanese gardens were designed to balance positive and negative energies. So what we might call yin and yang, and uh, which is coming out of really a Chinese astrological tradition that suggests that by governing positive and negative forces, we can influence the lives of the people who inhabit certain spaces. So within most Japanese gardens, there is an accounting for positive and negative forces and how they can be balanced by using what were the five elements, so five rather than four in the Western tradition. So earth air, fire, and water, which of course we're familiar with too. But in this tradition, we also have the um, additional element of metal. And so if you can incorporate all of those elements within your garden, you can help to balance the auspicious, but also the less auspicious forces in nature around you. And it can be very simple. So it might just mean that you take a beautiful pebble and gild it and there's your metal, for example. Or you might have a lantern. Think of how many stone lanterns you see in Japanese gardens. Of course, they're very, very practical. But the fire inside the lantern is also one of these elements that go to balancing what we might call yin and yang. So that's one thing to look for. Look for those five elements and see if you can figure out the way in which a garden is incorporating those five elements in order to bring balance and harmony. The other thing that I think is really useful to look for in a Japanese garden is how it interacts with with seemingly opposing forces, so just like the yin and yang, I suppose, in that sense. So, for example, where do you have void and where do you have mass? So where do you have a beautiful planar surface of a body of water? And how is that more beautiful because of the mass of cherry blossoms or a beautiful weeping willow tumbling down over that void of space, which is the water? And void and mass and how you balance those two things, which are seemingly contradictory, is important throughout the Japanese artistic tradition. So if you think about something like calligraphy or ink wash painting, it's there as well. So that's one certainly to look for. The Japanese are great lovers of asymmetry. If you look at contemporary Japanese fashion, for example, Isumiyaki, uh, asymmetry is something they really, really love, and that's in gardens too. In the Western tradition, imagine having a stone urn on one side of your path and not on the other side. It's inconceivable. Whereas in a Japanese garden, having that asymmetry is thought to bring a sense of dynamism. It's not a completeness. It gives an energy to the garden because there's some element. Of it that remains to be fixed or completed. So, asymmetry, I think, as with all Japanese art, is something certainly to look for. And then, one of the final most important things I think to Japanese garden designers would be seasonality and how that's incorporated into the garden. And often, as a visitor to a garden, one of the easiest ways to appreciate the seasonality of it is to look at the colour of the garden. What's in bloom? What season does that thing bloom? What's happening with the colour of the leaves? The Japanese Tourist Board has a website that gives you a status update on foliage and the colour of the foliage in all of the major tourist destinations in Japan. So the seasonality of a garden is really important. And for us as visitors, one of the easiest ways to mark that is by noticing colour. And then
0: on the reverse side, you've got the dry gardens. Can you tell us a little bit Mm, about how they work?
1: Absolutely. I love the dry gardens. I think that's a really interesting tradition. So the dry gardens uh, emerge. We often call them zen rock gardens uh, in the West because in the 80s, your average Wall Street broker became obsessed with raking his little zen rock garden for calm and peace in his office after a busy day uh, exploiting the universe. Uh, and so these these rock gardens emerge in Japan in the 15th century out of actually warrior culture, which is interesting. I don't think we tend to associate um, our warriors with the highly refined aesthetics of things like gardening. But in Japan, the samurai class, perhaps because they knew their lives would be short and hard and would end in Horrible violence they were very, very interested in seizing the beauty of the passing moment, which emerges it's an idea that emerges out of a Buddhist tradition, and so they became tea masters, they would arrange flowers, uh, they had a high appreciation of pottery, uh, and they would also create gardens uh, in which they could spend time when they weren't fighting, and so they seemed to particularly enjoy to enjoy uh, dry gardens. This is strongly tied with a particular strand of Buddhism that has emerged by the 15th century as quite an important force for the samurai class, and that's Zen Buddhism. And Zen Buddhism has a real focus on meditation. So these dry gardens, which to us look almost like the opposite of a garden, they look like the exact 180 degrees uh, away from a Western garden, just expanses of raked gravel, with very few groupings of rocks or trees in them. We see that as really the absence of garden, but possibly for these warriors who were so interested in Zen Buddhism, they were a space where they could sit and meditate and meditate on some of the really big fundamental kind of questions of life. How do we reach enlightenment? What is our path through the world? Perhaps these absences of gardens actually gave them a space in which they could do that.
0: Were the spaces flat expanses or were there patterns within it?
1: So traditionally, the gravel is raked uh, in patterns, and there's quite a, a tradition of preserving the pattern that has been used, that has been created in that garden. They might look like ripples on the surface of a pond. Uh, in a very, very famous case in Kyoto, a garden called Ryoanji, uh, which is a, a Zen garden associated with a temple, there there are fifteen. Fourteen. I can't remember how many rocks exactly because you only know when you reach a state of enlightenment, which clearly I haven't. Uh, but okay. these these rocks that are grouped in this very famous garden in Kyoto, in that garden the, rip, the uh, patterns in the gravel emanate out from those rocks almost like they've been stones thrown into a pond. So you have these beautiful shapes, which as the light changes during the course of a day, they are deep enough grooves that they cast their own shadow. So you have the interplay of light across the surface of the gravel, you also have when it rains a dance because the raindrops make those small pieces of gravel move around a little bit, so that the ground seems to dance, which is very beautiful. Uh, and you also have something that the Japanese have their own word word for, which is yohaku uh, nobi, which means the beauty of extra white. So the idea of that raked expanse of gravel is that it is so pure, so clean, so simple. It is. Extra beautiful, far more beautiful than the most beautiful peony or rose or azalea. So it must take a lot of looking after. Maintenance is so he- Absolutely. Maintenance is a really important factor in the Japanese garden. There is no kind of set and forget Japanese garden. You trim plants very, very carefully. The most famous gardens in Japan have teams of volunteers picking every single leaf off the moss in the morning before visitors arrive. You rake the gravel. In some cases, the, the gravel is raked every day, in others, maybe only once a week. Um, most of the structural elements of Japanese gardens are organic, bamboo, uh, rice straw, for example. They degrade over time. They have to be constantly replaced and renewed. Again, that's a a tie back to Shinto that really values purity and renewal. So maintenance is absolutely part of the Japanese garden, and I think it's a way in which you build your relationship with the garden by having to continually tend it and do things for it. But no, they are not believers in the low-maintenance garden, not even the Zen garden. So you've mentioned a few
0: gardens. Are there some others that you think are particularly special? Well, Japan
1: ranks uh, artworks, gardens buildings for national significance, so they actually have a list of what they consider to be their most important gardens. And high on the top of that list is also one that I would rate as a personal favourite, and that is Kenrokuen, which is a garden in Kanazawa. And it's known as the garden of the attributes because Chinese um, garden history says that there were six attributes, six characteristics that the best garden should have, and the six are held in a very uneasy ten They're seemingly contradictory. So to be able to have. All six things in one garden is a very difficult feat. And this garden in Kanazawa is known as the garden of the, of the attributes because it's thought that they are all achieved in this one garden. So it has an extraordinary seasonal variance. It doesn't matter what time of year you go. There will be azaleas if you go in the spring. There will be maples if you go in the autumn. But even if you go in winter, you'll see rice straw protecting conifers from the weight of heavy snowfall. So there's this beautiful structure even in winter, and that to me would be a a very highly uh, ranked garden and that's what's called a stroll garden and that's another type of Japanese garden that emerges in what we would call the Renaissance, but which for Japan is the Edo period, uh, and that is a garden that is designed to be walked around, as the name suggests. Uh, and as you walk around it, something new is always presented for you to look at, and it's something new that should really take your breath away. You know, the beauty of this huge bank of camellias, uh, or the sound of the water plashing down this miniature waterfall that's supposed to look like an important beauty spot in China. So that garden for me would be very high on the list, and people go to Kanazawa just to see that garden and I would completely support their reasons for doing that. It's a stunning garden. But I also like some smaller gardens as well. So there's a garden known as the Bamboo Temple Garden in a town called Kamakura, which is south of Tokyo, a very easy day trip from Tokyo. And that is a temple where over time, perhaps it wasn't designed this way, it's believed. It just seems to have happened over time. The garden has been taken over by bamboo and bamboo occludes all other light plants. I mean, that's another reason probably we don't like bamboo. Uh, birds can't even land in bamboo forests because there are no branches for them. So it's a very, very quiet garden, very muted, and the only thing that can grow under the bamboo is moss. So all you have is variation of green, variation of light, of, of light and every sound is muted. So it's an extraordinarily quiet and meditative experience visiting that garden at Hokokuji is the name of that garden.
0: So presumably you need to spend quite a bit of time if you go to visit. You you can't rush through, you need to spend time making the most of the contemplative atmosphere.
1: I think that's the pleasure of most garden visits, not just in Japan. I think the great pleasure of visiting any garden is that in order to, in, if you consider a garden to be an artwork, in order to enjoy it to the full, you have to move amongst it. And the thing that's particularly sophisticated, I think, in a Japanese garden is that your, how you move around the garden is very often set out predetermined for you by the person who planned the garden. And it sounds quite basic, but it might be things like how far apart stepping stones are placed. And that then regulates your gait. Can you walk quickly? Do you have to slow down and walk more slowly because of the way these stones have been spaced? So, in fact, the garden is telling you how to walk through it, how to see it. The garden designer has built that in. And often what they want you to do is not rush through it. They want you to take your time and move through it slowly in a more meditative uh, meditative style. Do we see a lot of this embraced in the West? Absolutely, we do. Yes. So in the 20th century in particular, there were a number of key artists. We already feel quite confident about that in terms of the Impressionists, but also garden designers and architects, people like Frank Lloyd Wright, who travelled to Japan and were very inspired by Japanese aesthetics and started exporting them. And I think once you get minimalism as a movement, there's a lot that the Japanese can contribute to minimalism as an art movement and the garden particularly thing like Zen gardens are an important part of that. So the Zen garden has been adopted with great gusto in the West, and we're still continuing to adapt it in quite intelligent ways. So there's an Australian garden designer called Michael Bates, and he takes what to me are quite traditional elements of a Japanese Zen garden just gravel, for example, Uh, and he uses Australian plants, Australian natives that can cope with that kind of hot, dry climate to recreate what is essentially a deconstructed Japanese Zen garden. So we do see them around us all the time to varying success. So his gardens, I think, are very beautiful. Whereas if you transit through Changi Airport in Singapore, wherever there is a dead corner in that airport terminal, they have put in some gravel and a rock and have decided that is going to be a a Japanese garden. It's not anywhere near as successful as something so carefully designed as Michael Bates' work.
0: But if you were interested, Japan's obviously the place to go.
1: I think Japan is just a dream destination for anyone who loves gardens because there's an extraordinary variance in the types of gardens that you can see. So there are these historical gardens. There are very modern and interesting gardens, particularly that emerged from the 1950s onwards. The way in which Japanese garden designers interact with their own tradition is really interesting, I think, for gardeners to see. But also because the seasons are so important to the Japanese way of life, celebrating them, embracing them, uh, slowing down and focusing on Whatever the joy is that that particular season brings, it means that there's also always a reason to go back and see a garden again, because most Japanese gardens are designed to change with the season and celebrate the season in ways that sometimes I think in, in Australia, in the average Australian garden that emerged, say, from the 1960s, we tended to forget about the importance of seasons when we were designing you know lawn edged with some nice annual flower beds. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time.
0: (laughs) That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.